One of our intros was like... How do you not know like, what the casting uh, couch is? I don't know. What? Oh, you want to hear the really embarrassing what? thing I had last week at the Baltimore show? This is not going on the podcast. This guy comes up to the <laughs> table with a shirt on. It looks cool. It looks like, like a bar or tattoo place. And I was like, oh, like, what's the bearded clam? And Joe and the guy just bust out laughing. And I am super embarrassed because I had no idea. <laughs> I just thought it was a cool shirt. <laughs> and yeah. Wow. And then we just looked at each other like, are we going to have yeah, to explain this? Yeah, but neither of them or? said anything at first. They were just like, who's going to say it? Who's going to tell her? what it is and the guy finally let me know and i was just even more embarrassed because she's like trying to start conversation you yeah. know because it's a reptile here's, show here's a nice icebreaker let's yeah. talk about the bearded clan <laughs> welcome to from the ground up where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded sit back and have a beer with us well some of you are driving if you're driving keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show Welcome to From the Ground Up Podcast. Surprise. You got to wait and you got to mute that when that comes up. We're so on top of it today. Listen, we've missed that the last like four times. I'm not usually over here who controls the Oh, you're in controls here. controller. Thank you. Great intro, guys. Surprise. That's a pretty classic intro, actually. Welcome to From the Ground Up Podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. PoorCityPythons.com, PoorCityPythons on Instagram, all that good stuff. I'm not going to bore you with all these things. But Southeast Carpet Fest, the auction is up now, so go bid on some items. You can buy one of his vouchers. I was going to say, yeah, I have a $300 voucher on there. Last I checked, it was at $145, so hopefully that climbs up there. I think, what is it, NIDO Research is what uh, proceeds are going towards? Yeah, man, it's going to all different universities, so they're spreading the love, and you get like half off a snake pretty much at that point. Yeah, yeah, hopefully have some nice stuff this year, too. We'll see what happens. Yeah, and if you're not into uh, short tails and bloods and all that good stuff, there's plenty of other things out there for you, but... uh, (laughs) cram already oh no <laughs> so yeah it seems like uh the it seems like the blood python short tail group really comes out as far as like you guys are more so of a community of it's i mean I, i've kept a lot of species i've worked with a lot of species it's definitely the most community oriented it's the most like fun group of people and i'm not saying there's not fun people in other groups but it's just <laughs> really limited drama like you know you Keeping ball pythons, boas, retics, like there's always, always drama. There's very little in short tails. Um, the people are more supportive, I find, too. Like it's not a competition. Everybody's like, I want you to produce nicer stuff. Um, I know at one point I had some Borneo projects I was planning and like Kara gave me a really great deal on the Borneo that ended up being like the founder of most of my stuff because she told me I needed to step my game up. She's like, you know, whatever. So she gave me this deal and basically, you know, I wouldn't have the Borneo as I have now if I did, if she hadn't offered me that. And that wasn't even something she was like, you know, just said, you need this. It wasn't something I was pursuing, but it changed everything for, for that game for me. So definitely a cool community to be a part of. Wow. So, I mean, most people don't start off with Borneos and short tail or Borneo short tail pythons, blood pythons, um, Sumatrans. So what was your first reptile and how did you kind of get into it? So I grew up terrified of snakes, um, like horrendously so crippling fear. 
could not be in the same room as them, um, which is kind of weird now because, like, my house is full of them. Yeah, you can't um, escape them. No, <laughs> pretty much my kitchen doesn't have snakes in the bathroom. That's it, at least that I know of. And uh, so I actually um, – I used to work nights uh, at Denny's of all places, and I had trouble sleeping during the day. So I was trying to find something just to kind of kill time. So a friend of mine recommended I go do some deliveries for, for a friend of hers. Um, and she owned a flower shop. So I went over there and started doing deliveries for that. Well, at the time, she was also running a reptile rescue. So she had a lot of, you know, snakes, lizards, monitors, all that kind of stuff. So many iguanas, um, <laughs> which are still something that I'm terrified of in, to a certain degree. Horrible Dude, pets. an adult male iguana is <laughs> like, like nothing to mess thing. with. No, it's, they're horrible. The tail is so terrible. Yep. Like, that's the worst feeling. And, and they had a room over there that was basically like, uh, let's say, 15 by 15 room where it was just a big tree built into it. And there was just like 20 iguanas that lived in there. And that was like the scariest place to go into <laughs> because they would all like stop and stare at you and start whipping tails. And you're like in there like, you know, trying to dive bomb. So that was interesting. But anyhow, I um, – you know, there were kid volunteers there and stuff like that. And I was watching like these five-year-old kids walking around holding snakes. And like, I just felt I can't be afraid of something that these little kids are just walking around with. Like I have to get over it. So for me, I always like to have knowledge of stuff. And I feel like knowledge eases a lot of, of fear. So I started just picking the brain of the people there, asking a lot of questions, just observing. And actually the first day that I really handled snakes – uh, I was by myself. I had asked permission and I said, do you mind if I take some stuff out? You know, I'll be responsible for it, whatever. And I went through and every snake that wasn't something that was like lethal to me, not that they had venomous, but just like there was a big African rock there. There mm -hmm. was, you know, large Burmese pythons, things along that. But pretty much everything six feet and under, I took every single snake out that day. And I just said, I'm getting over this and this is how I'm going to do it. And I didn't get bit by anything. And I was like, well, you know, I've been so afraid of these animals and I just handled maybe 40 or 50 snakes on my first day and nothing happened. And so I just got more and more curious. I started working there. And I definitely think that that kind of helped uh, helped me grow into the hobby in a different way than a lot of people because I started out from a rescue perspective as opposed to a breeding perspective. So I think that's why I'm so into you know screening buyers and doing all that because I've seen the dark side of what happens to these animals when they're not cared for properly. Uh, it also helped me learn a lot of like medical knowledge and things like that so I can treat a lot of stuff. So from the beginning, I didn't have to kind of make those mistakes and learn how to fix them. I already knew that going into keeping. Uh, from there, I just started keeping snakes there. Like I had a few snakes that were mine, like one that came in as a rescue. Any species in particular? Uh, the first one that I really had was actually a Burmese python. Not that I recommend that, but that's, that's the first one. Anyway. She was small, but you know. She was a rescue and she ended up passing. She didn't make it. Um, and then I had, which people are going to find really ironic, I had a Sumatran uh, blood cross. And that was my first short tail. And for somebody that's so anti-hybrid, that was the first short tail that I had. I was up at a place, if anybody remembers, called Regal Reptiles in Rhode Island. And they had this sub-adult 
you know, short tail cross in there and he was in way too small of a space and it like bothered me. So I did the, you know, Petco, I rescued it yeah, type yeah. thing when you <laughs> paid $200 for it. Um, I named him Sumo and that was my first short tail. And he was not the healthiest of animals and there was a lot of issues. Part of that was probably my husbandry at that point because, you know, I was still doing the tank thing and thinking that that was the and way to go. being a hybrid, at least you know it's not – it's probably not imported. Right, right. Uh, yeah, he was calm as could be. I mean, and I made every dumb mistake that, you know, kids make when you get into these animals. Like he used to sit in my lap in the car when we went places and like all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, yeah. Like he was totally chill. Um, but – Definitely not something I should have been doing, but, you know, I was like 18 then or whatever and thought it was like cool and I was that stupid person that we all yell at now and not yell to be hypocritical, but we made those mistakes and, you know, ultimately that snake passed, but it definitely inspired me to learn more about them. Um, and then I started off with like a pair of Borneos that I bought as babies and I actually got out of snakes for a while in like 2008. So everything that I had then, I sold the whole collection to someone. I took a few years off. I was still doing rescue work. Was so there I any reason had in stuff. particular? I lost uh, this big female African rock python that was very near and dear to my heart actually. She's right there. Um, and it was really, really devastating. Uh, she got out of her enclosure. She was actually in a large vision and she popped the doors. They were locked, but she popped wow. the whole assembly out of the cage wow. and she got out and, uh, she was gravid at the time in the early stages of that. And, uh, somehow my dog got into the room. She actually grabbed a hold of the dog. I wasn't home. Whoa. And, uh, she was about 135 pounds. The dog was about 75 uh, and my roommate's girlfriend was home and she got the neighbor and the neighbor ended up like cutting her throat and stabbing her to get her off. And I had to take her and have her euthanized. She was still alive. Oh my God. Um, and so that just really, really bothered me. And I really went through a, a very dark period. Personally, I quit my job. I moved out of that house. I couldn't even live there anymore because just the memory associated with that. And uh, so I decided to sell my collection because I felt like I wasn't in the mental state to take care Dude, of it. Dude, I don't think anyone was ready for that. Yeah. I mean, that's, well, that's hardcore. Did the dog survive? Yeah. He's actually the one that just passed last January, but this happened wow. in 2008. So Any did. superficial damage to the animal or to the, to dog, the dog? Rather? The dog, his eye, um, she got like sort of got him in the eye, not in the eyeball, but like the socket. So his eye sat a little bit funny. Uh, but other than antibiotics, the vet didn't have to do anything to him. Um, but she was, there was too much damage to her. And it was, it was such a struggle because the local, you know, this was at nighttime. So the local, um, you know, emergency vets wouldn't even see her. They were too afraid. And I was like, she's super fine. And like, it's an African rock python. Like it's not, they're not known for being No, but she was animal. like, super amazing she was probably to this day the nicest animal i've ever worked with um which i know people are not going to believe but seriously but it's like it's like a like, once in a lifetime animal. yeah bomb proof i mean and and being an early on keeper then i'd only kept for several years like that snake taught me a lot and she let go of a lot of mistakes i mean there were times where she could have had me dead to rights if she wanted to and she just wasn't that way uh, she really didn't even have a big food response. She was pretty patient for food. Like everything was great. You could open her wow. cage. She'd come right out, hang out. You could touch her, do whatever you want, pick her up. She was hard to, to maneuver because she's 135 pounds. But yeah, she was uh, just shy of 17 feet. She was a monster. 
um, but, but not in personality at all. But you were you were kind of a big Python guy right from the beginning. Yeah, you were like, always. let's get some big Python. Yeah, and it wasn't even like the like the short tails. I don't consider a big big snake. They have a big snake feel and personality, but they're really not in a huge package. Um, African rocks are definitely my favorite species. There's no question about that that's my hands down favorite species to work with and i think the reputation is deserved and undeserved they're very intelligent from my perspective and working with them i've never had one mistake me for food ever i've had them want to kick my butt but (laughs) because they wanted to kick my butt not because they were confused and uh i found they're very visually observant um and in raising them i've always kept them like everyone that i've raised i've kept in my kitchen for the first like six months so it's a room that i'm in every day but that i'm not constantly in so they watch my maneuvers they watch me move i also will wear like an old shirt around the house i sent train them to that so i'll put that in their enclosure once they're settled in and so that smell becomes associated with where they're comfortable and that seemed to work really well for me wait you put your shirt in there yep so I'll wear, so yeah, I'll wear a shirt I don't care about around the house. Heard of that yeah. So you sent him. So now when you're going in, they're used to seeing you. So the visual stimuli, you're not really getting them. They're used to that smell and that smells comfortable to them. So that's not a change. Uh, so it just kind of limits the number of things that are going to kind of churn that up. And they're smart enough to figure it out. And I've kept them since like 2004. And at one point I had a lot of them and I've been bitten once ever by an mm. African rock. That's and it was wild. a it was a captive bred. Of, I had imports like straight out that were great, and it was a captive bred baby, and he was in shed, and he bit me, and he he really went at it. You know, he was a little hatchling, but he did not want to let go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I've I've taken in adults that were supposedly mean. I just leave them alone for a few months, other than cleaning, and then you know. Some snakes, the smarter ones, they eventually get curious about you to some level. And so you can kind of work that angle. And that's what I found works with them. And I also found that going into their space is where you get in trouble. Mm -hmm. I always let my rocks come out to me and then they're fine. But if I violate that code and I reach in they'll get agitated and they don't necessarily bite, but they'll coil around really tight and and they're strong. Uh, So I'm not advocating that they're great snakes for, you know, the average hobbyist. I think they're, they're wonderful snakes for um, people that are really dedicated. But the problem is, is most of the people that would be good homes for them don't want them because of the reputation and because of how they can be. And when you, and when you keep, most of the people that may be into them or keep them correctly maybe have a lot of different animals and maybe that's yeah. a handful. For it's it's a lot of space and it's not something you're going to want to handle by yourself. Uh, I remember that uh, gentleman passed away over in Europe, I think, and it was an African rock that killed really? him. And it was like an eight-footer and everybody on the internet, of course, like, oh, an eight-foot rock can't kill somebody. Yeah. Yes, they can. I promise you. That snake is so strong. It's incredible how strong they are. And owning them, like, you just get he an appreciation. He was framed by PETA. What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> you know, and it's, it's – everybody forgets that it takes a matter of seconds in the right pressure for you to be passed out. Yes. Yeah, literally, if you cut off blood supply, so like a rear naked choke, you can cut off blood supply, it's less than five seconds. Yeah. So it's like, imagine if, you, if I can do that with my arms. Right. Here's this animal that's just built to do that. Yeah. And you people, got no blood going to your brain. No. 
and, and everybody thinks they're super strong and this and that, but, you know, especially a spook snake is the one that's the most dangerous to you. You know, it's, mm-hmm. everybody worries about the food response and that's one thing, but it's when they get scared that they really, you know, they're not in their right mind. Just like when we get scared, you know, we don't always make the best decisions. Uh, they will panic and, and that's when you get into trouble and they have a lot of power on tap. I definitely have a lot of respect. I mean, I've kept olive pythons, which I have now. I've kept berms, retics. Um, you know, I've been around scrubs. I think I think rock pythons are the strongest snake that I've, I've ever interacted with. Um, it's just a totally different level. And I remember having two equally sized, you know, a rock male and a berm male. Same girth, same length. The rock male was like 15 pounds heavier just because it's just so much solid. It's just a different animal. Berms are kind of flabby-ish, you know, even when you keep Mm -hmm. them right. Uh, But rocks are just, they're like that boa build where it's just real strength. Um, But the reason that I don't work with them as far as breeding goes is A, uh, there's so many legal restraints. And B, I just don't feel comfortable selling something that deadly to the average keeper like i screen hard now for bloods and short tails you would not (laughs) you would not want to see what i would put you through if i was doing african rocks so bloods and short tails are one of my favorite species but i figured that if i was going to get into something and invest some money into it that that was a safer investment for me was something that's not on the horizon right now at least for the legal landscape and that i can feel comfortable selling to a new keeper that i can talk them through raising that animal and that they can be prepared for it and they still are very very strong animals and an adult can definitely give you a run for your money but you know it's not something that's gonna be deadly unless you make a really really stupid mistake yeah. Was there was there any reason why you went from like keeper to breeder? Is there any particular thing that you were looking for as far as like, you know, what what made you start breeding? Well, the person that I learned from immediately after starting the rescue thing, he bred. And so I kind of watched the process there and watched the hatching process. And it is really super cool to like see babies come out. And, and even now after breeding for a while, like I have a couple of videos where you watch babies just pip and take their first like breath. And it's just one of those things to me that like every time you see that, it's like the coolest experience ever. Um, and so I definitely, I don't want to say I got addicted to that, but I definitely like really enjoy that part of the process. And that really makes all the work that goes into it totally worth it when you see that. And like, here's this life that like may not have existed if you weren't involved in the process. And I don't want to be like God complex. Like I made this cause the snakes make them. We just kind but of, you love snakes. So multiplying snakes sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Sounds like fun. So I, I enjoy that aspect of it. I also like, I'm not a super people person, but I enjoy seeing other people enjoy animals, especially animals that I produce. Like that's a really cool thing to see it be somebody's favorite snake in their collection or see it be, you know, something that they can hand to their kids and their kids are enjoying, you know, like that definitely uh, is also something that I really like. So I kind of think watching that process and stuff. um, And this was before, like when I, when I got into wanting to breed was before like the, I lost, you know, I sold my collection there the first time. So at that time I had some really cool stuff that I wish I still had. Like I had Salinese pythons and like cool stuff that like now is harder to come by. Um, I had a pair of those. I had a bunch of water pythons back then too, which I've just always been one of my favorite species. Uh, I had 
you know, <laughs> expert at assembling snake racks. My uh, my ARS rack definitely kicked my kicked my ass, um, and it's still assembled wrong on like seven levels. But I have no desire to take it apart and re put it back together. And Dan's referring to uh, it. Seems like there's been a couple of people who just like to mess with you oh yeah absolutely and, and the chat's just been like fucking with you and i feel like you've done a good job of not getting distracted but this one was like highlighted in blue because yeah. kyle clearly wanted you to see it. yeah so i uh yeah i definitely uh i definitely like like that aspect i just lost where we were talking about because he threw me no off. i think it's i think it's something to where we don't necessarily bond with people very well but clearly we have formed a lot of bonds through snakes like yeah like most of the people that i do like is because of our love of snakes and that's a weird thing. i i spend like so little time with my friends from like before snakes now like i travel for this stuff like this i'll go visit people's collections i'll go to tinley i'll go to whatever and then people are like you want to go to black island i'm like no I'm good. <laughs> no interest in that at all. It's sunny and hot, and I, I spend enough time in my hot, humid rooms. I'm good. Uh, right. But it is it is weird like that. I still have, obviously, friends from growing up, but I definitely don't uh, interact with them as much as I do like the reptile people. And, it, and it's weird, too, because some of the worst people I've met are in the hobby, too. Like, you just <laughs> – it definitely encompasses everything. And some people make you want to bang your head off of a wall. <laughs> You know, and, and you, you see some people and, and it's super frustrating to have some knowledge that you're trying to share with people and they just don't want to accept it. Yeah. And it's like I'm trying it's like I'm not even trying to help you. I'm trying to help your animal. And I don't I don't want to say it to sound harsh, but like I don't care about you. I don't know you, but I care about that animal that I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that's just who I've always been. Even as a kid, like I was not a video game person i was always in like the animal section of the library reading everything that i could read i always watched like attenborough and all that stuff growing up that was like my life reptiles were always of interest like i watched a lot of steve Irwin and the crocodile hunter like everybody else did from our like generation and that definitely i think opened the door to where i got to with snakes i don't think had i not seen that kind of content and that kind of passion for those animals that uh I would have ever been able to kind of get over that hump. I'm still terrified of spiders. That's that's going to be a really tough one. The person that gets me over that, I'll have to come up with a prize because I don't think that's going to ever happen. Maybe one day, Melissa. I would Melissa, that person on. in my life. I, just because I held one does not. See, the weird thing is, I would hold a tarantula. That does not scare me as much as like oh, a so wolf spider. Like yeah, those stuff. like jumping yeah. spiders. I'm terrified. I actually gave away a sectional sofa once because a spider got into it. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know where it was, and I felt like I could never sit on it again. Oh, I love that. So I told the people if they came and got it that day, it was theirs. Uh, and I got it out of my house. I, I mean, I am terribly afraid of spiders. <laughs> I have gone so far as if there's one in the house, I've wedged towels underneath my bedroom door when I go to bed. I left the hall light on thinking the light would deter them, like, uh, you no. know, like some kind of Lord of the Rings thing, like the light's <laughs> going to keep it away. So, so you don't, I'm bad. So do you subscribe to that fact that you always hear that, like, I don't, I don't think it's a fact that... People say you eat like so ever many spiders during the night. Yeah, I just while you I, sleep. I, I, I've I've read things that say it's a fact, and I've read things that say it's a total myth. I'm gonna operate under it's a myth because that's what I need to do to survive. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm gonna start sleeping with like a respirator take, take on. Your mouth shut. The scariest spider story I ever heard uh, was from somebody local to me. We were out for like Fourth of July on a boat watching fireworks. 
somehow got onto the conversation of my snakes, which always happens because somebody was like, he has snakes. And then yeah, everybody you wants get to like know. a little tinge. Of yeah. And then the next thing you know, here I come, you know, like the Kool-Aid man, you're going to learn everything. <laughs> and then, you know, we get into the irony of everybody picks on me because I'll handle any snake, but I'm terrified of spiders. And so this lady told me how she was on like a CPAP machine. And she had went grocery shopping and she kept her mask in her purse in the carriage. She bought bananas. Spider went from the banana into the machine while she went home and hooked up her machine. And the spider went up. Yeah, it went up into her nasal cavity and like started burrowing out of the side of her face. Oh, my God. And it was a brown recluse. So it was really bad. And she ended up with like all kinds of problems and sinus surgeries and all this stuff. And like that, it's like, I'm not on that machine, but that's my greatest fear. Like Ooh. if you wanted to torture me, lock me in a room with that, knowing that's in there and that's all you have to do. Like well, I'm, I'm, I'm all done. That yeah. She told me that. And I was, I was like, Oh, I'm like, first of all, and now like being, having my wisdom teeth out, like bananas are one of the foods I'm allowed to eat. So I had to buy bananas. And I was like so freaked out, like checking the whole thing still. <laughs> and arachnophobia is definitely something that contributed to my fear of spiders. That movie, seeing that as a kid, terrified me. And to this day, I do not put on my shoes without looking. Mm-hmm. I like cereal boxes. I'm convinced there's going to be one in there. My shower head is going to come off one day <laughs> and spiders are going to come out. So that movie definitely was a part of a part of it. And so I think about that too when I'm doing snake videos and things and sharing my snakes that there's people that have that same fear for yeah. them and that I want to put everything out there in a positive light and I want to make sure that, you know, I'm a being good for the hobby and B that even if these people are afraid, maybe it'll be enough to, to stroke a little curiosity and maybe let them see a side of these animals that they're not necessarily willing to see normally. And it has worked. Like I have people in my life that, you know, through my Facebook page have now like, they'll, they'll send me messages like, you know, I used to have to like scroll by really fast when one of your feeds is up, but now like I appreciate how pretty they are. They still want to touch them, but at least like they can appreciate some aspect of it. And that's where it starts to at least get somebody to appreciate that. Like now they're not thinking like I'll kill them all, you know, Mm -hmm. at least they, they understand and it's yeah. something to where I mean, you know firsthand that it's real as far as I think a lot of times we're like, oh, it's irrational. So, like, come on, get over it. Yeah. But, like, you're still scared of spiders. You yeah. know. You oh, know I know it's irrational. I have it's no, irrational, right? I absolutely know. Yeah. Um, but, it, like, it doesn't matter. It's still, it still feels like something baked in, I'm no. sure. And I, I remember I have I, – there's two great fears in my life, spiders and my mother. And <laughs> I remember I was not allowed to go out the front door of our house to go to school because she wanted it deadbolted as well as um you know just locked and i didn't have a a key to that door so i had to go out to the downstairs door well one day there was a spider on the stairs so i couldn't get downstairs and i literally was late for school i had to call somebody that happened to come and pick me up and take me in later i had to wait till the spider moved because my fear was so great to go out the front door and my fear (laughs) was so great to go past the spider that i was just in like this impasse of what do i do but i knew i had to get to school because if i didn't show up at school she was going to kick my ass so it was like just wait and wait and wait and finally the spider moved and i was able to get by it but i mean my fear was really bad when i was younger i'm not that bad now uh, I had one in my mailbox. I think I told you about this earlier. I'm not sure. I might have been talking to somebody else. But I used a pair of pliers to get my mail for the whole summer because I don't want to kill it. 
because you know it's it's outside it's in nature it's where it belongs but i also am not sticking my hand in that mailbox no way no how that thing's gonna attack me and kill my family so <laughs> i uh i use i use literal pliers and uh that's how i got my mail for a whole summer <laughs> see i think I, i'm so biased i'm like oh why are you scared of snakes if they're nothing but i think the spider fear is so rational <laughs> But that's only because I have that fear. Right. And you started a little bit afraid of snakes as well. I did, I did. But, well, okay, I don't want to say all snakes. I'm so scared of some snakes, 100%. And there's some snakes out there you should be scared of. Like, um, James even said he's not going to go mess with his white lip. Uh, yeah. You should be scared of that animal. But my corn snake that is, you know, smaller than a dollar... I don't understand that. But then at the same time, the spider is smaller than the snake. Yeah. <laughs> but it has eight It's so different. It's, it's the way they move and so yes. fast. Yes. <laughs> if, they, if they had one leg, I don't think it'd be. One leg, imagine. <laughs> just dragging itself around. <laughs> and it had a cane. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be as scared of it. Yeah, like daddy long legs don't freak me out at all. I'll really? pick those up, put them in my hand. They don't bother me. They don't really move fast. It's and like it's very deliberate. They're like a mole or a birthmark with legs. They're yeah. So <laughs> they scare me, but not as much as like. You know, you know, it's funny too. I don't see those around as much. Like I remember growing up as a kid, they were everywhere. That's a very, very good point. And I don't really see them ever anymore. And I'm outside a lot. But yeah, like you go to any window when you were a kid. They, they were, were there. Be a daddy long yeah, they were all over the house, all over your deck. You were playing outside. They're everywhere. And I couldn't tell you now that we're talking about I don't remember the last time I saw one. Hashtag. Uh, Where are the they now? Man. Yeah. yeah. What's going on? That's scary, though. There's literally like insects and stuff because no one really cares. But they're they're disappearing. Yeah. And it's like, what is what is going on? Probably all the nice chemicals we put in the air. This is going to get way too uh, conspiracy yeah. theorists here. <laughs> the chemtrails and all that is coming. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's definitely interesting. And, and, you know, that stuff is kind of the base of the food chain. So you start messing with enough of that, you're going to affect everything. Yeah. Uh, look at how much we depend on bees. And, and snakes are a species in a lot of places that people don't realize how much we depend on them for things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you look at tick removal. Possums and, and snakes are two of your best best bets for that. You you get rid of them. and You're talking to the guy who's from Lyme, Connecticut. Yeah, I am. And I have had you're Lyme from disease. from the birth of, of the Lyme. Yeah, I uh, I've definitely had Lyme disease. Almost every dog I've ever had has had Lyme disease at some point. It definitely happens there. Uh, but um, yeah, so tick removal is super important. And like I said, possums do a great job. But I, they did a study with I think it was timber rattlesnakes, and it's like every adult timber takes like two to four thousand ticks out of the population a year, Whoa. just because they're eating you know mammals that are feeding on them. But what's crazy is that's that's not even an animal that eats a lot. You know, they- yeah. Snakes have such a slow metabolism. They're only taking down, you know, you know. What if they take down a dozen to twenty priatums in a? In a yeah, you figure they must be loaded with ticks or something. Yeah. You know, like it's it's very weird. And you know, I imagine that number is not necessarily inflated, but I I would imagine that it's saying, well, if they're eating two hundred, then they can't reproduce. So there may be something to that factor in those numbers. Mm. Uh, but definitely, you know something we we want around because i don't like ticks that much and i don't like getting lyme disease so and now there's even worse diseases out there dude there's that one that makes you not allowed to eat meat yeah in texas nope 
That's like one of my parents at my school in Dallas. She got that. Nope. They like went hiking in like Arkansas or something. I like how you were gonna say herping like a normal person would go herping. <laughs> it's whatever. Normal people don't. And she got it. Yeah. Now she can't eat meat. Why are you it's... outside if you're not herping? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Oh, yeah, dude. Like, at all, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I don't go outside much during the summer. Okay. I am not a hot weather person. <laughs> but it, I mean, that's so scary. Imagine like one little thing that you can't really control or do anything about. Yeah, and all of a sudden, like, congratulations, you're vegan. Like, you don't have a choice. There you go. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah, that's then, a lifestyle change. Right yeah, I, I can't imagine. I would definitely. That's one of those things that like I might have to consider just leaving. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. I like my burgers. I like my steaks. I like I like fish. I like all that stuff. Like I just it's they need time. to make assisted suicide legal yeah, for exactly. the folks who can't eat meat anymore. Exactly, it should be for sure. <laughs> it's like those people that get allergic to alcohol. You know, it's it's no good. Yeah, yeah, it's a rough life. I'd rather I should, some people maybe need to get allergic to alcohol. Yeah, I would definitely rather lose alcohol than than meat. I won't lie. Yeah, uh, I don't drink very much these days, so I, that I could deal, I could deal with that. But if I couldn't go get a ribeye, that's that's a problem. Yeah. Well, I'm vegetarian. That's why I'm all of a sudden Stop so pe- so pale and. You're vegan. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it's a difference. One's extreme, I feel like... one's mediocre. <laughs> no, I feel like I feel like once you once you once claim you're vegan, you're on the team. I don't want to be on the yeah, team. Yeah, you're there. You're. That I understand. No. I just okay. I just want to not eat meat and. Mind my business. And not eat dairy. So vegan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... Well, dairy's one of those things. Like, I remember growing up, they pounded into us that, like, milk is so healthy for you. And then you get older and you learn, like, it's really not. No. And dairy's really not that great. And yeah, you it, have too much of it. What stinks is, like, I'm lactose, so it affects me. But, like, everything I love is dairy. I swear, like, ice cream is one of my favorite things. Like, I love pizza. I love nachos. I love all this stuff that's just cheese, cheese, cheese. Uh, so, it's – it's I suffer. I just don't care. Yeah. See, I used to do that. And then once I got – once I got to a certain point, like, the older I got, the worse it got. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm more of a vegan for the fact that I, I'm lactose intolerant more so than – that I don't want to eat dairy. Um, probably eggs is what I would want to eat more so, and what I'm but trying to eat a little really bit more. Affect you that much, which is no, weird. no, no. I mean, that's not that doesn't count. That's a different thing. But um, so yeah, how do, how did we get to talk about this? The milk is what hurts. <laughs> because of the ticks and then the, the snakes that remove the ticks. This is how these things work, you know. <laughs> this is this is a good example of what happens when you go on YouTube too. You start one place and you end up Bam. somewhere totally different. And it's funny because I feel like most of our ones that are done over the chat are very topic specific, very question and answer. But when I get someone in person, it's much more of a normal conversation. Yeah. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm sure you'll find both both answers from people. (laughs) I'm sure people will not hesitate to tell me. The one thing that's guaranteed in life is you will never make everybody happy no matter what you're doing. Uh, Somebody somewhere will find something wrong with it. But then why do we strive to do it? Like, when we know it's not possible, I feel like we're still always trying. Yeah, and we and we still get upset when people have those opinions, even though that we know that they're coming. It depends for me. If, if somebody has a bad opinion of me that I respect, then that'll bother me a little bit. But if it's a person that I don't respect, I really don't care. Like, there's some people out there that want to talk to I don't care. It doesn't affect me one iota. I'll laugh. I'll interact with it. But it's like I, when I go to bed at night, it's not staying with me. But somebody that I had tremendous respect for, if they were to 
you know, say, hey, what you're doing is stupid, then mm-hmm. that would stick with me because that's a person I look up to. So if I don't look up to you, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> See, for me, it's like I I probably too much want to be liked or, you know, so it's hard for me that when someone like doesn't like what you're saying and you're trying to prove your point and yeah. then. I don't know. It upsets me more than I than I want to admit. So it's like I don't I don't post on Facebook groups anymore because it's like even if I am trying to help someone, it's not going to end up. You know, it's just going to end up me feeling shitty more. So I'm not sure if if Kyle's being sarcastic or serious Kyle when he's is always being sarcastic. Well, but but he says, "Have you guys talked about Dan's sweet YouTube channel?" But like he'll send me like great video all the time and stuff like that. Seriously, so he he might really think it's sweet, or he might just be trying to, to <laughs> shit talk me. I'm not sure yet. But that's a great segue. <laughs> Dan, talk about your YouTube channel. Um, he's so serious. He said, "No, I'm still not sure." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds condescending. Maybe. Um, I'm not yeah, sure. so I, it's it's funny because everybody does the YouTube thing now, and for the longest time, I stayed away from it because I did not want to be another YouTuber or that type of thing. So I was just doing a lot of Facebook Live for a while, but Facebook now with the PETA thing involved has gotten like so anti our animals that. Mm content was getting removed even on my instagram they'll take down some of my snake posts sometimes and it's like i want i'm I'm putting out content that's hopefully helpful to people so i want to uh to have that be able to be there and so i figured youtube was a safer bet even though now youtube's having its own set of issues and everything else but uh I wanted to cover. We made some... sure it's not safe for kids. That's yeah, when we filmed earlier. Yeah, we made certain. Yeah. <laughs> someone. God. Yeah. Not... A certain someone. Certain someone doesn't know how to control. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, just look around. I don't know. <laughs> Who could it be? Yeah. But uh, so I wanted to make some content a that wasn't out there in in mass. Talk about some subjects that maybe don't, and some people might find it a little boring because it's not. Uh, it's not you are in a sixteen-year-old girl. That that is definitely true. It's so funny looking at an Instagram too for that because you'll see like you know an attractive chick post like a normal ball python and it'll have like three thousand likes and then you post this snake that like took fifteen years for you to make and like you get like seven. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. it's even switched to the fact that like when I came up in in snakes, like when I first got interested in the market and the industry of this whole thing, it's like. You would you would have someone post a ball python and it would send like ripples across the whole community and they'd be like, oh, my God, you see that thing that that person produced? And I feel like now it's like there's so much scattered attention everywhere and it's like people seem to get more attention than animals these days. Yeah. Uh, And so my my YouTube channel. Uh, I, I'm trying to do like an episode and I also thought it'd be cool to do like meet the collection segments, which I've slacked on recently after my dog passed and then getting my wisdom teeth out. It's just been like a kind of bunch of BS going on and I haven't done as much as I, I should. Uh, but I thought that was cool to let people, you know, just get like a five minute video, tell them a little bit more about the background of the animal, both from like a genetic side and, you know, individual personality traits, just let people kind of in on that window instead of just doing the whole room tour and this is that now you have a, a segment to really get to know know the animals uh, and that's also why like i try to name all my snakes and i am way behind but i find that people get a more personal collection or connection with your animal when it has a name as stupid as that may be uh 
And then they're looking for, I want that, you know, Tux Incognito baby, or I want that Jackson pitch or whatever it is. People are drawn to that animal and know that animal by name, and it gives them more of a recognition. And so now it's not just, oh, that's a really nice Sumatranist. Well, that's a, uh, you know, Jackson pitch, or that's a Tux Incognito, or that's whatever. And that works marketing. And then also it works for education, even throughout YouTube and stuff. People have that personal. The biggest mistake I ever made was going into a classroom setting and I had a snake with me that did not have a name and the kids asked me and I was like oh no I have to make up something on the fly so my Burmese python for that day was named Bruce Bruce. (laughs) I just picked something that maybe the kids would would be okay with (laughs) I was thinking of the one from uh, Finding Nemo so I figured I figured that would work yeah um, I figured I respected the berm where I didn't make him like, you know, flower or something. I made him something <laughs> cool and, uh, cool, you know, like, but it was something the kids could associate with, but yeah, definitely, uh, having a name for them definitely makes a difference, especially with kids, but it, it works yeah. for adults too. Uh, and we don't think that way, but in our mind, it just kind of overrides that. I will remember a name more so than like, oh, that jungle pairing from that guy. Right. You know, you know, cover girl to whatever, whatever. And and then also like when people are asking me like methods to tame tame their snakes or whatever that are defensive, it's funny because I'll have people talk to them and it has nothing to do with the snake. But when you're focused on talking, you're not focused on fear. And so people tend to... The, half the problem with defensive animals is you're afraid to get bit and the animal senses that and you're just reinforcing its need to be defensive. So I have people talk all the time and I remember one friend of mine I told to do that and he was like singing the snake songs and stuff like that (laughs) and I didn't tell him for like two weeks why I was doing it and then he's like, oh, so you're training me, not the animal. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I said, if your mind's focused elsewhere, you're not thinking like, oh, it's going to bite me and then you're Mm -hmm. not making those movements that that are causing the problem. Uh, so that works quite a bit. So it's amazing if we can trick our mind with certain things. And it's the same thing with marketing and everything else. Like, But I, I, I just can't be that flashy pomp and circumstance person. It's just not who I am on any level. Mm-hmm. So my YouTube channel is not like cool graphics and fast moving. And <laughs> I don't do any editing or anything. I just shoot and go and upload and you know, one take and you see what you see. But I also feel that's a more more honest approach for the viewer where the viewer knows you're not editing stuff out. If I make a mistake in saying something, I'll mm-hmm. correct it and move on. Uh, and there's videos out there where I get mad because I made a mistake saying something. And, didn't catch it. <laughs> and I'm like, ah. Uh. And a lot of times it's stuff I know, but sometimes when you're under the pressure of like presenting it to someone else, you just kind of get into the wrong wrong direction. But uh, I definitely hope people that are are watching it are enjoying it. And I always get good feedback. Uh, I'm one of those people that gets like frustrated with how slow things build. Mm -hmm. And I want to like just like burst down walls and build, build, build. And not because I want like any ego out of it, but I feel like a lot of the information is good information that can help people both new keeper to, you know, more advanced. So I want that information to get out there and I want people to see it. And I want to hear feedback, even if it's negative, I would rather you know, fix things. Like the first two videos I shot, I had the phone up the other way. And so they looked horrible. Oh, you did vertical. Yeah. I didn't know any better. So somebody told me I fixed it and, you know, made all the difference. Uh, And you can see from watching it, it's a totally different watching experience. So it makes sense. So I'm always open to stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And that's something that, you know, touches on another subject. Too many people in this hobby are too sensitive and not open to any criticism, constructive or otherwise. Mm. Like nobody wants to be told you're an idiot or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes you'll be so constructive with people and they get so offended. And it's like, I'm just trying to help you. Like, yeah, 
you know, and they're like, well, I don't need help. And it's like, maybe you don't realize you do, but you do. But it's it's also hard in, in the Internet's defense. It's hard if you post on a Facebook group and you're like, here's here's this animal. What do I do? There's like 15 people and you don't know who the qualified one is. So. Right. And I actually did a YouTube video on that and how to interpret information from social media uh, because it's such a prominent part of the hobby now. It's it's mm. funny because, you know, growing up on Kingsnake and Fawn and all these places, it's like the hobby's really on Facebook now, which is yeah. wild. There's still people that aren't on there and there's a lot of the hobby that goes on that way. But the bulk of your market, the bulk of everything is on there. And uh, that's the problem. Anybody can literally go start a Facebook group about reptiles and say that they're an expert. And what do you know? So I always tell people when you're joining a group, you know, it's, it's good to sit back for a little while, observe and see and check information. Having a mentor is huge, but also it's hard to select a mentor because you don't know, you know, who is right and who is wrong. It, it's definitely a tough, tough time. Uh, you don't always have the privilege of living in a place where there may be a local snake breeder or keeper. Right. Uh, so, you know, the person that probably mentored me the most wasn't local, but still, you know, having that in my corner definitely helped me have a lot more success than I would have had without that. Uh, and it just helps because you'll, you'll see conflicting information and you don't know which is right. So it's nice to have that person to bounce that off of. And that's also something I touched on in that video is like when we've had snakes for a long time and we do get tired of the same questions over and over to some extent, mm -hmm. like you have days where you're just not as patient. So it's more helpful if a person's coming to you with a, you know, I did some research and found this versus this. And how do I interpret this into the right data as opposed to just, I got a blood python, tell me how to keep it. Like that shows me that you don't want to put in any effort into that animal at all. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll go to the ends of the earth for people, especially customers to help them with any question that I can. Even if I don't know it, I will research and try to find out that answer for you and try to, you know, bounce ideas off of people and get, get you something. But it's definitely shows me a lot more initiative when you come to me with, you know, I saw these people said, keep them at 87. These people said 80, where do you keep yours? As opposed to just, what do I do? You know, makes a big difference. Yeah. Who are those when you were first getting into Borneos and Short Tails, I mean, who were the people that you initially looked up to? Kara was definitely um, – I bought – Sambuca and Tux were like I, – I, I initially bought a trio of Borneos. Uh, I shouldn't say initially, but when I got back in after you know selling my whole collection, uh, I started going heavy in like 2011. And that's when I decided like I'm really going to go at this again and I'm not going to back down and sell my collection. I'm going to work through whatever. And so I bought Tux and Sambuca from Kara, uh, my Sumatran short tail, one of my pairs. And that opened up a door with her and her and I became friends. And, you know, even beyond just snakes, like she's somebody that I look up to for advice in life. And, and she's been very helpful in all that stuff. And a large part of my success, I would attribute to that time that she invested. And she also just saw, you know, how passionate I was for the animals and everything like that. And that kind of made her want to help me even more to succeed. And that's like I talked about in the beginning of this with the community aspect of short tails. Mm -hmm. People want you to succeed in that community and they want to help you, especially if they see you're passionate and you're about the animals. You know, we'll all go to the ends of the earth for those those people that aren't just like, you know mistreating their animals or whatever else if you really want to learn and you really want to be involved like 
pretty much everybody in that community is great about that. There's a few people that are a little more reclusive and whatever else. And there's a few assholes like everybody, you know, every family has, <laughs> has a few, but it's just few and far between there. And they're not the loudest voices, which is nice. Uh, but she's definitely up there, you know, obviously being close to nerd and being able to go up there a lot. I've learned a lot of stuff from there too. Uh, between, you know, Rob and Kevin and Jeremy and all these guys that are up there and Emily and all these people that, you know, are keeping these other snakes. And, and the biggest mistake I think people make is they only want to learn from like certain people, but you can learn something from just about everybody. Mm -hmm. Even somebody that's been keeping for a year, they might have been through experience that you haven't. Gotcha. And, and you see some of these people that have kept and they kept well and they've never had a problem. So when a problem arises, they don't really know how to handle it, even though they've been keeping for 10 years. Whereas that you know, keeper that might have been keeping wrong went through this problem and learned the treatment process. So you might be able to learn something from their mistake. Uh, and so I think people miss that opportunity a lot. They only want to learn from like a Kevin or a bar check or these people that they think are, you know, on this pedestal and deserve it to a certain extent. But you can learn just as much from from other people, too. And so it's been nice to have peers and peers to bounce ideas off of. I really think that's probably the best part of that community is just the willingness of everybody to take time and, you know, nobody's ever too busy for you. And, and they'll always, you know, they want to. They want to learn from that, whatever you're talking about, and they want to help your animals as much as you want to help theirs. Uh, but definitely people like that. And it seems like that is an area as far as uh, blood Borneos, um, short tails in general. It seems like an area to where you need to uh, be at least a little educated to find out what you're looking for and what a quality animal is. I mean, yeah. there's plenty of that you see at shows, but almost none of them are going to be U.S. captain born and bred. So, I mean, what do you do looking for an animal? It really depends on uh, what species it is, first of all. Like each species I have different goals for on what I want to do. With my Sumatrans, I'm trying to go two different directions. So I'm trying to make really vibrant chromes but that have really dark expression. And then with my darker stuff, I want like the blackest black that I can possibly get. Like Nathan Explosion, you know, blackest black time infinity type thing. But... I also don't mind the whites that those snakes have on it. So I'm just trying to eliminate the brown from the equation. And I'm trying to do it earlier and earlier in the animal's life. So they all hatch out with some, but I'm starting to get to the point where some are having less and less. And then I'm trying to select those animals. It's really easy to get enamored with like the head color because that's what sticks out. And my first like year of keeping holdbacks, I was like, oh, this one has a dark head, ignoring the pattern, the color on the body and everything. I was just enamored with that. Once I got over that and I started looking at subtleties in there, that's when I started getting better quality holdbacks and stuff that's going to make more sense for my long-term goal. Sumatrans, the color the color phases are chrome and then like the wild type is going to be black, right? Well, or I mean, the, the wild type, was... pumpkin head is a, is a separate locality. Okay. Uh, the orange heads are an isolated population and there's a lot of talk that eventually those are going to have at least subspecies status, if not full species status. Uh, they're different behaviorally. They're different like size-wise and composition. Their egg you know, yield seems to be different. Mm. So Is that generally frowned upon to breed out, you know, to breed pumpkin head to chrome? I would never do it because I know they're such distinct localities and I like the pureness of localities because we've lost a lot of that. 
over the time in the hobby. And eventually stuff's not going to get imported and there's already things you can't get. Like Malaysian bloods basically don't really exist in the hobby anymore, at least not pure ones. Uh, everybody crossed them with the Sumatran lines, not to be confused with Sumatran short tails, but Sumatran blood pythons. Um, because Black Mal bloods. Yeah, no. Because Malaysia hasn't allowed export in I don't know how many years, but it's been like 20 years or something plus. Wow. And so your everything that's getting exported is coming from Sumatra. And uh, so we've lost that bloodline because nobody bothered to keep it pure. Even though it's the same species, you're not making hybrids, you're still locality differences. We were talking about, you know, the Fuscus with, you know, Queensland versus, you know, New Guinea and that stuff. And I want to try to keep that separate even within that. Uh, so I'm definitely one of those people that likes to keep localities pure. Mm -hmm. But uh, the dark ones are selectively line breds. So they don't naturally, I mean, they naturally occur darker and lighter depending on whatever. But they're usually more of a brown, black, gray mix uh, naturally. Uh, and some of them will have like a tan into brown head to dark black. So they're, they're line bred to get that dark. And... Uh, so selecting them is, is tough if you don't know the parents and grandparents. You're really mm -hmm. taking a shot in the dark. Yes, you can make an educated guess once you've seen a lot of them. But realistically, you're really just rolling the dice. Uh, and bloods are the same way. You know, baby bloods, you could hold two side by side that look very similar. And in three years, this one's vibrant red and this one's dull brown still. Mm -hmm. And it all has to do with the lineage that's in there and what, you know, what's behind it. And parents will give you an idea and grandparents. So I don't like to roll the dice with imports unless you're in a situation where that's all that's available or, you know, you're trying to bring in totally new blood to do something uh, or a new genetic. But as far as, you know, when I'm going for color, I want to establish color to mix in there. Are there any, like, legitimate as far as, uh, I want to say normally inherited, I'm not sure how I want to put that, but are there basically any morphs in, in Sumatrans? Uh, there is caramel albino, which I think is like a T-positive albino in uh, in them, which I think is more often seen in the orange heads. I believe that it, it originated from that population. What do they call that? Because um, I thought I saw it named something else when we saw it at Tinley. That's a Borneo. You're thinking of the sunset Borneos yes, or something? Yes. That's the T-positive that was in Borneos, which oh, for okay. a long time nobody got into because they were convinced that it was from hybridization and not... Uh, mm natural um it doesn't th that doesn't excite me that much they're okay but i like my borneos how i have them you know the side swipe stuff i really like a lot um so that the t positive in that hasn't lit my fire it doesn't really in the in the sumatrans either i've never even considered getting involved in that i also do if you can get a black animal with those orange eyes like yeah. that's top notch yeah, and the, the funny thing is, and I can't tell you how many times, and it's it's gotten to the point where, to be honest, like I just say okay and let it go with those because they're not hard cells. But when the actual truly dark babies come out, they have silver eyes. Even though they'll have really? orange later, they have silver eyes for the first few weeks. And so I'll post pictures of babies and people are like, no, I don't want that. I'm looking for an orange-eyed one. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> and uh, the ones that hatch with orange eyes as babies usually don't get as dark. And really? so all these people are chasing something because they don't know. But if, yeah, if people have like an attitude about it, I don't even say anything. I say, okay, good luck. You know, go, <laughs> go buy one that you think is going to turn dark and then you're going to be disappointed, you know, whatever. But if people are decent, then I will, you know, go on to that. Because, yeah, if you look at my hatchling pictures versus like a month or two old, their eye color is totally different. Dude, that's wild. 
Mm-hmm. How many Sumatrans or how many pairs do you have going uh, in a typical season? Uh, I like quality over quantity, so I don't like to do a lot. Uh, not to mention, you know, the market can only support so many animals. Fortunately, right now with the truly nice stuff, there's not enough people producing it, so the market's really good. But if you were to flood it, you're gonna ruin that market. And it seems like you also it. you also have some like ball python spillover now. I feel like in some of the morphs, especially in red bloods. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more people coming in. And just looking at like the Facebook group, Blood Pythons, it's like doubled in size in the last year or two. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag because like I said. That's spent, always a, that like double-edged sword. Yeah, I spent a lot of time like showing people how wonderful they are. But then you get these people that come in and want to capitalize on that that really aren't passionate about it. I liked it before they were cool, damn it. Yeah, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's frustrating to see people – overfeed them and to see mm. people trying to baby factory them and it's just not what they're built for and people who have put production ahead of the actual animal right and and that's one of the things that i can also say about the blood and short tail community is the vast majority are about those animals and those animals are their pets their family whatever you want to consider them and they really want the best for them and that was also part of the thing that attracted me to be a part of that was and no one got in it for the money at all no. like so many of of blood and short tail guys are it, it's it's difficult so to say because you can make money breeding snakes so to say that you can't is wrong right but you really don't make substantial money ever like i don't have any money in my bank account there's nothing but my snake collection went from worth like you know a couple thousand dollars to worth maybe thirty, forty, fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So that's where I've made money. Like I, you know, from time to time, it's nice. Like my car breaks down, and I have money to fix my car. But or you always have animals to where you can put something up for sale and yeah, get that money. Yeah, you have like an emergency fund when you need it. Right. But it's it's not like we're going to go on vacation six times a year and you're going to see me <laughs> like in Cancun on a yacht. Like that's not the life I'm living. Uh, but it's not a lot of hobbies can pay you back. Most hobbies yeah. just drain, drain your bank account. And this one can and it will. Uh, but – you got to get past that hump, though. Yeah. There's definitely a... Uh... And then you, you have to be careful, too. And, and when people first get in, they just buy everything they think is a good deal. and They don't understand the concept of value, which is another topic I covered in a video um, where I, I try to explain to people that, you know, the market might say this snake's worth 500 and it's perfect for what you need and somebody's selling it for 800 I would rather buy that snake than... Um, go get one for $200 that's not going to get you to where you're going even though that snake might also be worth $500 by the market you know you're not really getting a good deal because you're tying up money space and resources into an animal that's not going to get you to your goal and I bet you're saying even like oh I got this animal from Kara that probably holds more weight than say hey I got this off the table at a reptile show yeah I don't remember from who this pairing is yeah yeah, blah 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 there's definitely in bloods and short tails like the my target base for customers are those people that are selective and that want, you know, that want lineage stuff and that want stuff that's going to work. Even if it's just a pet, they want something that looks vibrant or looks nice. And then, you know, personality is something I strive for too in my animals. I like my animals to be, to be personable as much as you can get out of a snake. And so that's why I like using them for those videos and things is it lets people see that you can get to that level with your animals. Uh, And I think I told you earlier, like I've never been bitten by one of my holdback animals ever, like Mm -hmm. ever. And I've been bitten my fair share, but uh, <laughs> but I've not by those animals that I've raised, uh, you know, that hatched in my house that have always been there. Like there's a comfort level and how 
I work with them, and like I said, I did a video on taming hatchlings. I don't believe in the flood, flooding process, at least not for for these these species. Um, it might be a little different with some of the colubrids, where you know they're not building that relationship with you on the you same don't wanna, level. You don't want to overdo it, I think, no matter what. Right. But um, flooding with with these guys, like which is where you're just handling them over and over until they basically, you know, their will breaks. I don't really think you're building a long term relationship with an animal when you do it that way. You're not teaching them to trust you. You're just teaching them to give up. Mm. And so I like to leave them be when they're little and let them come to me and, and work on their level. And you don't have to handle all the time. I mean, some of my snakes outside of cleaning might not get handled for a month or two at times. It, mm. it doesn't change their personality. They're still fine. I go and pick them up and shoot a video and they'll sit there for an hour with me and not care because I've put in that time and I've built that trust to where they know that I'm not a threat to them. Right. And you don't win them all. You know, my, my <laughs> ocelot is never going to be my friend. Uh, there's some snakes that are just hardwired that way. And those snakes are best left to, to be how they are. And I try to minimize my interactions and make it as positive as I can for both of us. Um, and like my white lip female that she mentioned earlier, you know, I've made a ship box for her shift, excuse me, ship box. <laughs> she does shit in there sometimes, but I made a shift box for her because that's less stressful for her. Yes, right. it's less stressful for me, but it's more so for her because she's so manic that I'm worried she's going to injure herself. So if I can eliminate that, that risk, then I would rather do that. And so I think that's an important part of keeping is, uh, trying to make sure that you uh, you keep your animals on their terms and not force them into what you want out of them or at least pick a species that you know fits with what you want I tell people that all the time yeah don't try to get a ball python and put it on display in your living room don't you know yeah you got to learn about about the animal and right and if you want a snake that you can be held that can be held every day I mean there's almost no snakes that are like that to be honest no. unless that unless that's a small period of time and then you know, you also get the one where, you know, well, I want to get a snake, but I don't want to get bit. Well, there's also none of those. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Every snake can bite. Yeah. So it's kind of difficult. I will say, and it'll sound biased because I breed them, but Sumatran short tails, I do think, are like the best pet snake ever. Dude, I had a Sumatran. It was just so chill. Like they n never take anything personal. You can do whatever you want with them. If you want a snake that you can sit on the couch for two hours and watch TV, they're totally cool with that. And obviously you have to put a little work in initially, but even as babies, they hatch out. They rarely ever bite. They eat great. Their food response is like psychotic though sometimes. So you have to <laughs> definitely be careful there uh but they seem smart enough to differentiate when they're eating versus when they're not uh they are like as personable as snakes get they seem very curious about us and what's going on husbandry wise they're pretty forgiving as long as you keep proper ventilation they're usually pretty good if you don't keep them ventilated though you'll you'll kill them over time really and what are the what are the signs of doing that and kind of what are the measures you take uh, well i First of all, that's, that's why I use tubs with them because you can put ground level ventilation in as much ventilation as you want. And they need humidity and high humidity and low ventilation obviously is never really an ideal situation for other than growing mold. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. <laughs> what, that's what your goal is. You're in a science lab, sure. But uh, so having that ground le that level ventilation really helps. And people get hung up on temperature and humidity and temperature humidity is husbandry and everything. And it's not everything. It's part of it. Uh, but definitely uh, – Ventilation, I would say, is the first three most important things with those those bloods and short tails. You can 
make mistakes in husbandry with temperature and humidity and get away with it. You cannot make mistakes in ventilation and get away with it, at least not for very long. Uh, and you'll get the people that are like, well, my snake's in a tank and it's fine. And yeah, it's fine now. But when that snake gets older and it's breathing heavier and it goes to the bathroom and you're gone for two days and now all of a sudden it's breathing that in and it can't get away from it, you're going to have problems and you're going to see respiratory infections and they just don't bounce back from respiratory infections like other species do. Uh, you know, like a, a ball, you get a respiratory infection in, you can kind of turn the heat up if it's minor and just handle that yourself. You don't necessarily need to go the antibiotic route, um, depending on, of course, how the, what type of, you, you know, you're dealing with and all that. But just as a basic statement, uh, bloods and short tails, though, even with antibiotics, like it's just hit or miss whether they come out of it. Hmm. If you turn the heat up on them, usually it just makes them die faster. Uh, so you can't cook it out in that, in that regard. Like you can, are they kind of one of those species that have a ceiling as far as when they get too hot? Like they obviously like it pretty stable. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, absolutely, when they get too hot, they are evil, maniacal, terrible. Nine times out of ten, when somebody's like, oh, mine's so mean, you ask them what temperature they're keeping at, and they're keeping it too warm. Mm. Uh, I actually keep mine probably a lot cooler than a lot of people do. I have mine a lot of the time are in like the high 70s into like maybe 80, 81. And that's a straight ambient temperature? Yeah. No hot spot? Um, I do hot spots for gravid females and then certain snakes that are in like that other room I told you about where I keep that room like 74. Uh, I'll, I'll use a hot spot in there. And I even played around recently because I wanted to, to see, you know, what they did in like a cooler temperature. And I kept a couple for months in like the low 70s. No issues at all. I mean, healthy, everything the same as, as everybody else that was warmer. But when you overheat them, they you could just see it all over them. They're totally different animals. Their personality is different. Their stress level is different. And stress just kind of opens up the immune system to all kinds of, of crap you don't want. So even my gravid females, I'll give them a hot spot of like 85, 86 when they're gravid, and that's all I do. Um, you probably could get away with like a hot spot of like 88 when gravid. I just don't feel like going that high. Uh, I also feel like when you go up to the top end of anything, if you do have a temperature spike, you're so much closer to problems that I just don't like to, to take that risk. Uh, most of my females use the hot spot at least some of the time when they're gravid. I've had a few that just don't go on it at all. And they'll sit in a certain position in their cage, wherever it is that they find that that temperature they want, and, and they control what they want to do. Uh, but definitely, once you get north of 84 degrees, and it depends, and there's literally a line where you just hit a certain line in the sand, and that snake is done. And it will not tolerate anything. It'll get super moody. Um, some of them, it's 85. Some of them, it's 86. Some might go up to 87. Uh, but if, you, if you're doing a hot spot and you keep it around 83, 84, and they can retreat to a high 70s, low 80s, usually you won't have any problems. Yeah, and, and Darren was asking in the chat, but are there any like physical ailments you'll be able to see pretty early if your ventilation isn't up to par? It's, it's one of those things that's kind of hard to describe. Um, it's like you know what you're looking at when you see it kind of thing. But they're definitely their scales will look a little bit rougher sometimes. They'll look a little bit different. 
Uh, you definitely see it. Like, I don't know if you've kept white lips before, but white lips are no. one of those species that like, absolutely not. It, they look night and day. If, if you let them go like a day without water, they will start to look like a corpse very quickly. Well, olives will sometimes, if it's a little bit low humidity, they'll yeah. get like a dry scale here and there. Yeah. And you can tell by that. You're yeah. Like, olives are like, you know, a couple of steps down from the white lips as far as like, you know, an olive a couple of days without water is not a great idea, but they'll be okay. Like white lips, if you go too long, they're dead. Like they just don't, they don't keep hydration as well. Mm. And maybe it's something to do with their skin composition, just lets out more moisture or something. And so if they're not keeping that constant level, then it doesn't work. Bloods and short tails are forgiving uh, to some extent. The, like I said, the ventilation is the one thing that they're not. Uh, and the easiest way to do it is give them ground level because they're super susceptible to like their own urates and stuff like that. And so if they're sitting in that and the density of that, it'll stay in there and it keeps recycling through their system. And they're such heavy breathers that, you know, it really affects them. So having that ground level ventilation allows that to get out because in a perfect world, we'd be sitting there waiting for them to go to the bathroom and clean it. But that's not the world we live in. Like right. we have to work. We have to go away. We have to do things. You know, you get your arm broken. I had to take my wisdom teeth out. So I was down for like a day, you know, things happen. So you want to have your enclosures kind of self-sufficient, at least for a couple of days at a time. And uh, adding that ground level ventilation really helps with that. And so all of mine have it. Uh, in all of my tubs, if you go around and look, they all have holes, you know, and don't go dead ground level because they will flood their cage from time to time. You don't want them <laughs> running out. But yeah. within like an inch of the bottom is usually a good place to go and that's enough. Uh, but especially as they get larger, as babies, it's not as prevalent. But once they get adults and they're really big and they're really breathing into those big lungs and they're, they're breathing heavy, you definitely want to have as much ventilation as you can while still maintaining you know, decent humidity. They're forgiving. You can get them down to 50% humidity and it's not going to cause you a problem. I wouldn't keep it there long term. I keep it in the cord. You can um, move that. If you no, that's fine. But, uh, you know, You've I... You've only been in front of it for an hour now. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I try to keep mine like 60 to 70% with the higher being when they're in a shed cycle. Just seems to help them. Being heavy bodied, sometimes they'll they'll don't shed as easy as, you know, something like a carpet, for instance, or whatever, where it kind of just rolls off. Mm -hmm. They have that pronounced spine, and so it's kind of pointy there, and then they're heavy underneath. So it definitely helps to have the humidity and hydration, of course, is key with everything. And I know, like, when we've done shows with Matt, and he has his uh, short tails out, the babies he usually keeps on flooded. Um, he keeps the the slot in the acrylic display flooded and or else they'll seem to get like a more deflated i guess undehydrated look yeah I, are there any like, are there any considerations just for keeping a baby normally i mean well it, it depends like the reason he's doing that is those are probably babies that haven't shed yet and to people that don't know uh bloods and short tails take like three to six months to have their first shed it's not like a lot of other pythons are usually 10 to 14 days and and they're done and wait wait to feed them until they have their first shed right whereas whereas short tails like six days out of the egg will start eating um and so they're gonna they're gonna have sometimes 15 20 meals before they ever have a shed uh so we usually keep them wet for that period of time and not, you don't have to be sopping wet, but you just keep them damp. So I'll keep them on damp paper towels. And obviously they still have a water dish. And the first like week or two, I do keep like a quarter inch of water in the bottom of the tub. Uh, sometimes short tails can be funny about seeking out water when they're babies. Mm -hmm. So it's easier if it's just everywhere and they yeah. can just drink. 
and once you get past that point, usually they're pretty good. And then once they have their first shed, you don't have to keep them wet anymore. And you can stop keeping them wet a little before their first shed sometimes, but it's not going to hurt them. They're not prone to scale rot. And I think a misconception that a lot of people have with scale rot is that it's just moisture, but usually it's filth and moisture that causes that problem. So it's sitting in, you know, dirty urine, whatever you want to call it. I know it's not technically urine coming out of snakes, but urates. same idea. Yeah. Well, it's weird because like urates, the, I always picture the hard stuff, but yeah. these guys pass a lot of liquid. A lot of liquid. I don't know. Um, my big T-positive female, like, I mean, she probably lets go of a half a gallon at a time sometimes. It's like a lot. And uh, Dude, and it smells so bad. that It's that, strong. I'm used to it, so I don't think about it, but people are always like, oh my God, how do you deal Matt with that? Matt had we that had adult so porno. We shared, we shared a hotel room with Matt at 10 Lane. <laughs> oh, and you man. just walk in there and it just <laughs> hits you. Imagine, I don't mind imagine having a hundred of them. Yeah. <laughs> so strong. And but I'm had, so like, used to it. Come, like find the one that did it. You know, get all of his stuff in the corner of the hotel. Yeah like dig through to find the one who it was and that was i think it was yep. just one i think it was only one of them who did it I think it was an adult but it was so yeah, oh it was so bad and she had like he had to take her in the bathtub right to clean yeah. her all off oh yeah yeah that was rough yeah. um marita asked after they do that first shed is it six months again is it you know how long no then it goes to a more normal shed cycle i do think they shed a little bit less overall than some other species but i just think it's everything slower with their system but like anything else, they shed when they're growing. And so if you're feeding them too much, then they're probably going to shed more often than if you're not. Um, I know like I just had a ton shed because I, I gave them like a month off without food for my sub-adult stuff, which I do like usually once a year. I'll give them just some time to let their body completely reset, get everything out of their system. And uh, so then I fed like the last, you know, 20 days I fed twice and so they all went into shed and I had like 19 snakes shedding at the same time you know? <laughs> so uh, that was a that was a messy couple of days of cleaning there where they all started you know shedding because they like to go to the bathroom when they shed too a lot those let everything go at once uh, but it, yeah they're they're interesting snakes. is there any like like guideline to where certain age from this age to that age, you feed this often and blah, blah, blah. So another thing worth checking out on the YouTube channel is I did a video kind of on feeding snakes in general, more focused towards pythons just because that's what I know. Uh, and by the way, so people know my my YouTube is Dan Magano Snakes. Kept it simple. Um, but I am one of those people that I don't believe in feeding on a set schedule. I believe you know, naturally, obviously, these snakes are opportunistic feeders. So they might eat twice in a week. They might not eat for six months. You know, their bodies... They only eat Tuesdays at 4.30. Right, right, yeah. The snakes don't have a calendar. I always tell people that. Yeah. They don't know what's going on. So I like to feed based on body condition, age of the animal, you know, sex of the animal, whether that animal's breeding that year, not breeding that year. Uh, you know, uh, I base it on just, just how they look. I just go in and I say, okay, this snake's sitting a little heavy. This snake's sitting a little light will adjust. I like to vary my meal size, frequency, and type. So if I can, you know, mix in birds, mix in guinea pigs, mix in rabbits, mix oh, in rats, sweet. I like to do that. Um, birds, I don't mix in as often as I should because I hate how they smell coming out the other end. <laughs> uh, that's the one thing that I do for myself that I shouldn't be selfish with, but I am. Uh, but rabbits are like a good lean meat, so I like to, I like to mix that in for sure. Uh, and also... Uh, you know, like I said, I like to vary the frequency. So if I feed like a medium rat to an adult, which can take 
much larger meal, then I might feed them again in 10 days. But if I feed them a rabbit, then I might wait a month. Mm-hmm. You know, so I try to vary my time based on what I fed last. That's a lot of record keeping, I feel. Well. Or you don't. I don't keep I records don't at all. Uh, like, how do you remember uh, who you did a rabbit to? But I, I just know, and it's really hard to explain, but, like, I could go in. You could go through my room right now and ask me, when did the snake eat? What did it eat? You know, stuff like that. I know all in my head. It's one of those things that works in collections, maybe our size, more so than, say, if you got on the commercial level. Oh, yeah. Where you got to, yeah. You got to start messing around with uh with actual record keeping just because there's no way for you to, to remember all that information. Dan, what did yeah. you say the YouTube channel? Uh, I don't have any spaces, so maybe that's making the difference, and no S on the end of Magano. You should probably go to YouTube.com. Go in this. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. Trying to help. There's my page right there. Um, so, yeah, so with younger snakes, you can get away with feeding a little bit more because they're growing so much. But once once they get past a certain point, I start to slow them down. But that video gives a lot of information. Like I was telling you about those that study on the Burmese pythons, it takes 14 days for that animal's body to recover from the time it starts eating. And so if we're feeding every week or every two weeks, we're never allowing that animal's body to reset. And so that's why I like to give them a month off without food. And I, you know, I told people in that, you know, some colubrids have super high metabolisms that would probably be bad if it's not a brumation thing but for the species that i keep and for pythons in general you can do that a lot because they don't have you know super high metabolisms uh boas i think would be the same thing i would definitely give them time off breeding females you don't have to think about it as much because they're going to naturally take a month or two off of food anyway uh and i don't offer food once i see ovulation i've only been once or twice where i got surprised where like a snake ate and then like a week later is sitting on eggs where i didn't realize she had ovulated and she wasn't showing uh but they will eat if you let them sometimes so i just try to eliminate that from the process is that ovulation obvious or is it something where you're like this snake doesn't eat this kind of makes sense time wise she probably ovulated so once again in a perfect world you'll catch ovulations most of the time especially if you're checking your snakes daily but ovulation like it lasts uh, over the course of a couple days i guess essentially but there's really only like a 12 or 24 hour period where it's really obvious uh and with larger snakes sometimes it's harder to see because you don't see it as much they could just be sitting in a different position uh when you do catch an obvious one it's super obvious like you get the whole swallow a football look and because they're already huge i just wonder how much bigger they could get yeah it depends on the snake but like my big t positive when she ovulated like i thought it was an ovulation but i was like i'm not a hundred percent sure i'm trying to take pictures from multiple angles and pictures never show it the same as in person. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but like you take a picture of an ovulation that looks huge. See, when you look at the picture, it's like it really doesn't look like much. And it's really weird how that happens, you know, whatever it is about. You also gain an eye for what the animal usually looks like. Yeah. And then you're like, whoa, this is so much different. And so I may not Be- see the Behavior same. to me usually tells me more information than anything. I'm really in tune with all of my animals. I know all of their normal behaviors. So any little thing that they do differently, like I'll notice right away. So even though I have a hundred and something snakes, like I know this snake sits on this side of the cage this time of year always. And now she's on the other side of the cage. Something's up this snake, you know, never wraps her bowl. Now she's wrapping her bowl. This snake, you know, is usually doesn't move for a month at a time. Now she's restless. Like there's a lot of things that they'll tell you that their body's going through something and, 
you know, if it's breeding season, then usually it's it's related to that. Like Lilith right now is one of my girls that's been breeding that I think is going to go very soon. Just behaviorally, the way she looked the other day, I actually put the mail in with her before I left, but I think she's already there. Um, and it's just it's just weird. You just know sometimes just like I just opened her cage and I said, ah, I think she's close. And there's nothing that I can give you <laughs> definitively that'll tell you why. Yeah. I just I just know her and I just sense it with her. She wasn't as food reactive as normal. Uh, normally she's one of those snakes that her head's right out and she's right there and she wasn't that way. And like once I started feeding in the room, she was interested, but it took more to get her interest going, which tells me something's going on. Uh, and she, you know, she's healthy or something like that. But, uh, this is like the old student of the serpent thing. You know? Yeah. Like there's, these are the things that you can't teach kind of. No. And then, you know, everybody wants to learn more about their snakes. This is the way to do it. The hands on and learning. And if you do have somebody that breeds and you're getting into breeding to have them to be able to be part of that process really, really helps because you get to see those things. Mm -hmm. And like, there's certain, there's certain things about breeding that like, I can't feel follicles. I'm one of those people, like, no matter what, Agreed. I've never been able to feel follicles. It's like, I'm a person, can you feel how loaded they are? No, I can't. I have, like, no feeling in my fingertips. I can't. <laughs> but I can tell when she's building and when she's heavy just by her behavior and stuff like that. So there's other ways to do it. But it's super frustrating to not be able to do that. Like, it's the size of a pearl right now, this follicle. Yeah, and I'm like, no, nah, I don't feel anything. Nothing. <laughs> but Joe sees things that I don't. Like, of course, thinks it's easy. See, no, not to me. He's all the time. He's like, "Oh, it's building." Can you see him? Like, what are you talking about? Corn snakes have a flat belly, and then once they're building, they have a not flat belly, and it it's pretty obvious. Not. Can you stop saying that? I just. Well, no, no, no. It's not obvious to everyone. <laughs> you see things that I do not see. It is not until it's like he. You'll huge. get there this year. You'll be able to tell. It's your third year. Getting my third eye. I guess. I don't think that's how that works, but okay. I feel like it is like a third eye. It's like you're seeing things my, my eyes literally do not see. Like it, I can't find it. I can't pick up on whatever it is you're noticing. So. Well, I've, I've seen that in people where I'm like, look at this obvious ovulation. They're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, look how big that snake is right there. And they're like, I don't see, see it. Like, I don't know what you're talking I'm about. I'm like, oh, look at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny how that is and how perceptive perceptive you get especially if you spend a lot of time with them and and that's why like i say building those working relationships with your animals makes all the difference because everything happens slowly in, in pythons and like even illness like if you're in tune with your animals you might notice something's off before there's really any symptoms to go off of you might already have an inkling like something's not quite right with this animal its personality's off why and then you can start trying to eliminate you know, different things and, and figure it out from there. And sometimes that'll be the difference in life or death if you can pick up on yeah. something early on versus, oh, well, now its mouth is open and it's breathing funny and, and stuff like that. So it's definitely, I like to spend a lot of time with them and not just cleaning and all this stuff. I, I take my snakes outside during the summer and I like to get them into different situations. I do educational programs. I like to see how they are with groups of people. And obviously I don't bring a snake to an educational program that I haven't seen with a controlled group of people before. Right. But that's why I like bringing them outside, having a few friends over, seeing how the snake is. Because in my snake room, a snake can be one way and then all of a sudden we're out somewhere else and now there's five people around and it's freaking out. So you have to know how that animal is going to handle each different situation. And I think the more confidence and trust your animal has in you, the more in turn that it 
you know, is open to new situations. Same thing with husbandry. I always tell people the more comfortable your animal is in its enclosure, it's going to make it more comfortable everywhere. Because now, like, at least it has somewhere it knows it's going to go to and unwind and relax and feel safe. If your snake's stressed out in its enclosure, everything's stressful. Like it doesn't ever get a break. It's just constantly in a state of stress. Yeah, just like a human. Imagine being an – you're going to be an irritable person no matter where you are. Right. What are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> I know a few people. Yeah. So, so Dan, <laughs> like what do you feel is the future of your breeding? What are some things that you're looking forward to in the future? Just uh, a lot of my holdback stuff is coming to age now and starting to breed for the first time and then uh, – I've got holdbacks on the horizon. I just I just like to see where stuff goes and where you can take certain projects. And even within my collection, I have like separate segregated projects within a species that I like won't mix, even though, you know, it's the same species. Uh, like I have sideswipe stuff and superstripe stuff. And it looks very similar. Uh, some people think that it's the same gene. I don't just based on how the genes interact with other genes. Uh, like I've seen superstripe stuff go into granite and marble and react one way or as sideswipe reacts a different way and it manifests itself very different visually. So if the genes are interacting like that differently, it kind of makes me feel like there definitely is some difference there, even though they look you know, similar. Like Matt has a super stripe that looks almost identical to one of my sideswipes. Mm. But every single, single thing that I can see with marble and granite into sideswipe, you really don't see the marble and granite. It's like hidden. Even if it's there, you can't see it visually. Whereas I've seen a lot of super stripe stuff where you can see both visually. So that to me tells me maybe there's something different. So I like having both of those and I want to work with both those lines separately. Also, those genetics are so hard to pin down as it is, no matter what yeah. you're talking about. Borneo genetics, like the more you <laughs> learn, the less you know. That's uh, <laughs> that's what I'm like. I'm like, Matt, I think... I think you probably know the most. So what is this? He's like, I don't know. No. It's like and then you, you'll hatch something out. And selling Borneos is super difficult because everybody wants that ball python. This is a pie. This is a well, pastel. Yeah. Too, yeah. And it just doesn't work like that. There's polygenics going on. You can do the same pairing three times and get three totally different clutches of different results. Um and it's kind of maddening. It makes you a little crazy because you get a snake you really like and you're trying to make another one and then you can't. Or, <laughs> or you know, you get you get nothing from the first pairing and then you do it again and you're like, wow, like this is incredible. So Borneos are probably my favorite thing to breed because of that mm -hmm. because when those eggs start hatching, I don't know what's coming out. I have an, an educated guess, but every year it's like it could be anything. It's also odd how it seems like Sumatrans – and red bloods don't seem to be nearly as polygenic. No, not at all. Or like, you know, and they have they have genes that are much more conclusive or the, the red bloods have genes that are pretty Yeah, I mean, golden eyes, right? magma, all that stuff is like pretty cut and dry. There's a few things in bloods that are still a little, you know, work in levels and work in different ways. But even some of the Borneo genes that are like sort of recessive also can work in other ways and like <laughs> yeah it's recessive but this one time i had yeah. shut out the first so time. like like ultras are really funky gene in borneos and it does a lot of weird stuff so you can get you could breed an ultra animal to you know a ghost animal and it can interact and and it can work together or it can't you know one time and then 
you know, you can you can get ultras from ultras and then you get like these funky looking babies that look definitely visually different than a normal. Mm. They're not quite ultra. And then you get different levels of ultra within that. So you could have three ultras that look totally different than anything alike. So it, and it, and it works like that with a lot of Borneo genetics. So when you're trying to sell it to people, sometimes it's, it's frustrating for them. And so mm. it's a lot easier when you're selling it to just say, this is from, okay. from yeah. Sideswipe Ultra to Ultra, or this is Blue Ghost to Sideswipe or Super Stripe to this. There's some that you can definitively say, this is what this is, but not all of them work that way. Like Sideswipe is easy. It's either Sideswipe or it's not. That one's easy. But we don't even know the extent of Sideswipe at this point, whether it's incomplete dominant or whether there's there's something, you know, it's just dominant. Uh, so that's something that I have to work on eventually. And I was supposed to, like, really work on that. But I've gotten so distracted elsewhere that I, yeah. I've been putting my Sideswipe stuff into Blue Ghost. And then, you know, I'm putting it into this line. I have not done a Sideswipe to Sideswipe. Sometimes it's more fun to create new things, I suppose, yeah. than... Uh... And at some point, I have to go back and, and get that hard road traveled. Like, I have a female right now, a sideswipe female that's ready, and I have another probably two next year that'll be ready. So, I'll really start mixing more stuff in there now and, and really figuring out that sideswipe stuff. But realistically, it could be years and years before I actually figure it out. Because right. if it's not visually different, then you have to hold back every single sideswipe and figure out which one is producing all swipes, which one's not. If you can't find, you know, like you just, there's no way to know. And you can't do I mean, you could, one time. In, I mean, in corn snakes, we have, we have animals that are dominant or incomplete dominant, but have super forms that will create, you know, all of their phenotypes. So say like there could be a super side swipe that produces all side swipes. Or, right. Well, that's, but you can't tell phenotypically the difference. Right. So we don't know if that's the case or not. And the reason that I went after that female She's not one that I produced. She was from a side swipe to side swipe pairing. So even though who knows whatever, at least that's a better starting point than, you know, my stuff that's side swipe to not. So she could be, I could breed her and all side swipes come out and then we go, okay, maybe it is. And you do it again and see what happens. Uh, so that's part of the reason that I haven't put a, a side swipe male to her yet because I want to get that first clutch from something else and just see what happens. Mm. Have a starting point. Got to get uh, that wild type. Yeah. yeah. Is well, there such I, thing as a wild type Borneo? Oh, yeah. I feel sure. like I've just never seen them because I've You don't oh, see them as often anymore. Yeah, no, Matt, everything <laughs> Matt has is crazy. He's like a, a mad scientist. He's got all kinds of stuff going on in there, which is why I have so many animals from him because, you know, they add a lot of depth to a lot of projects that I have. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to I have a pair of like orange head stuff from him that's smoking. And they should be ready next year, I'm hoping. And I'm really looking forward to pairing that up because. I want super, super orange head stuff, and I want to try to eventually work that into some of my lineage stuff and see if I can get mm. that visual side swipe with a super orange head. But it's weird. You never know. Certain genes kind of block out other genes, and they don't play nice, and so you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, and I think there's definitely something to the fact that Matt's been so focused for a certain amount of time in which has made it super advantageous and he's gotten so far in Borneos and it's amazing. Oh yeah. But uh deadly tarantula girl 
ask, do short tail pythons dull down when they get bigger, or do they keep their juvenile coloration bright and beautiful? Uh, typically, in, in that, that's all lineage-based, and that's why it's so important to know the parents of the animals that you're getting and the grandparents of the animals, because like I said, you can have those two bloods together as babies that are both brown, and one's going to be vibrant red, and the other's going to stay brown. Uh, and that's all going to be based on lineage, and it is a bit of a crapshoot. Even from nice lineage, you're going to have different levels of how nice that animal is. And that's why, like, you know, martyr line bloods, for instance, you know, Kevin Martyr there, he put in the work for a long time and his consistently throw nice animals. So they don't look like much as babies, but you give those animals two to three years and they look amazing. And then even as adults, they continue to change a little bit over time. They don't dull down per se as they get older, uh, at least in bloods, but they'll get like a deeper red a lot of times. So an older animal might be a lot darker red. Um, but overall, good lineage gets better. Uh, so, you know, it, I know it's frustrating with ball pythons. Like you see this beautiful baby ball python and then it hits adulthood and you're like, eh, you know, it lost a lot of that visual appeal that you had. Yeah. Um, which is why like pides are nice because they always look nice. They don't lose that appeal. But like pastels, some baby pastels come out like, you know, highlighter yellow and then they're brown in three years and that's yeah. depressing, you know. Yeah. Uh, Borneos probably stay somewhat more consistent. Uh, they definitely change. Uh, I have some that look totally different now than they did as babies. And I try to share that once in a while. I'll share pictures on my Instagram where it's, you know, this is three years ago. This is now. Mm -hmm. So people can see. Because when you see it every day or constantly, you don't really notice it so much as seeing here's this baby when it was, you know, five minutes old versus, you know, three years old now. Uh, Sumatran short tails, once again, quality lineage get much, much darker if they're darker. Chrome, I haven't really cracked the code on that one yet. Um, I've it, it's funny because I've made some really nice chrome animals, but I tend to hold back the wrong ones, <laughs> and uh, so I'll watch somebody else's that I sold look amazing, and mine's like, yeah. So I have I haven't quite figured that out. I'm still trying to iron that out. This year I think I did a lot better. Uh, we'll see. Time will tell. But uh, I think once again, when I was talking earlier, getting enamored with the head color, I got caught up in that instead of looking at the body. And this year I went by the body more. So we'll see if I do better in that regard. But overall, you can expect bloods and short tails from good lineage to get better with age. Cool. And if someone wants to reach out to you, uh, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook. If you just look up Dan Magano, I am on there, but that's, it says alt on it because that's my when I'm in Facebook jail account. Um, <laughs> my, I changed Classic. my name on there as a joke, so it's under Danage Magano. Uh, so that one's possible to get a hold of me. I'm on Instagram as uh, The Real Magano. And then YouTube, I guess. I don't even know. Can people message you on YouTube? I don't even know. Yeah, but go watch his videos and subscribe yeah, to the channel. Definitely check out the YouTube channel. I, I think, you know, let me know what you think. Uh, I think there's a lot of good information on there, especially as I got later and a little bit more comfortable with the platform. Uh, I started tackling some stuff and, and uh, you know, enrichment and all these different subjects. And I like to look at stuff from like a no BS approach. And my opinion's in there on a lot of stuff, but I'll, I'll tell you when it's opinion versus fact. And uh, so I think that, uh, you know, it's worth checking out for people if you're interested in learning a little bit. And I'm open to ideas for future videos, too. You know, we shot a video today that's probably not going to get uploaded tonight because by the time I get home, it's going to take a million hours to <laughs> upload. We'll see. 
But yeah, we, we filmed the video a little bit about colubrids, brumation, all that good stuff. We went off on some tangents as well, I think. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of stuff in there. But as far as us, Port City Pythons, PortCityPythons.com, Port City Pythons on Instagram, Port City Pet YouTube channel. We promised yes. you guys a video tomorrow, so Joe has a late night ahead of him. Yeah. <laughs> MLK Day Marathon. Well, I don't, I guess, I don't know if I have to work tomorrow or not. Oh, I, I don't have even to. Know. Is, that, is it Martin Luther King Day tomorrow? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. Holy crap. I'm still like thinking it's like the 13th. I didn't realize how far into the month we are. I don't know how that works for you. I don't know. I never home. get told when to work and when not to work. Oh, really? It's very odd. Yeah. I don't even know. Like, I've worked through certain holidays. I'm not even we, sure. We get a floating holiday for that. So our company recognizes it as a holiday, but we still go to work. But it gives us a day off that we can use Somewhere. some other time as a paid day off. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, so like Patriot Day, we get one of those. And like, <laughs> I don't even—I never even heard of that. Our company's based in Massachusetts. Ah, oh, so is that um, Mass? So no, I mean Patriot Day is—is is I think nine eleven, if I'm not mistaken. It's for oh. that. Yeah, so they—they they, we still work that day, but we get a floating holiday for that. I think they take it off in Massachusetts, but we don't down here in Connecticut. They bought our existing locations out so we kind of operate a little bit differently mm-hmm. uh than they do but yeah i'm all about floating holidays yeah well you will see a video soon on dan's page with us in it and then we have our first port city pet video oh, snap. that will be there by tomorrow <laughs> she's she's giving me those eyes like you better get it done now that we said it you need <laughs> to get it done you'll either see that video or joe's body one yeah or the other. <laughs> Rest in peace. No more videos. <laughs> but other than that, you can find us on Instagram, Port City Pythons. Oh, you already said. Yeah, I already went through this. We just suck at ending things. That's how yeah. it goes. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, Dan, for joining yeah, us. Thank yes, you for having for me. Special Sunday podcast. Yeah. Uh, it was great. Peace. In the Middle East. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're asking a little too much.